April 30th. Mm -hmm. Happy Kasi Chief. Happy Kasi Chief. Happy Kasi Chief. So how do we get the most out of our education? Well, first of all, we have to know what we want. You have to know where you're going. What do they say? If you don't know where you're going, you probably won't get there. If you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. That's if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. That's a good one, too, but that sounds more positive. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not sure if that's actually true. But if you don't know where you're going, you probably won't get there rather than any road will take you there. Yeah. So I think before we talk about how to get the most out of our education, why don't we find out what ideally you'd like to get out of your education? I'm going to tell you quite frankly, Maybe I shouldn't tell you this, but most professors haven't any idea where they're taking you. Like seriously, really seriously. I mean, they should. But one of the problems in higher education in the United States is that the vast majority of the professors aren't trained as teachers. So what it's like in America is that thank you, you have to be trained as a teacher to teach in elementary school and in high school. But anything above high school, you don't need any training in teaching. Isn't that strange? You don't need to know your craft. You just need to know your subject. So the, one of the problems with that situation is that a lot of times the professors don't even know where they're taking you. They don't even know what the goal is. They just have some content that they want to cover. You know, they have a textbook and they're trying to get you through the textbook or through the syllabus in a certain amount of time. But they don't really have a clear goal. Which is why many times after you finish a course or a degree, you're not, there's not necessarily a connection between what you've studied and what you do with it and what you do with your life. And I think many people feel that the vast majority of what they learned in school is not what they use in their life. Most of what they learned in using their life, they learned out of school. Most of what they learned in school, they don't use in their life. Yeah. I hate to break this all you, but there's a lot of studies that a number of years of education does not correlate with happiness. Sorry about that. <laughs> so I'd like to ask all of you. You know, what what are your goals for your education? What do you hope to achieve? And why don't we think about, again, I wish I had a board, so just kind of imagine that I did. Uh, if we could think about different areas of life, you know, the primary areas of life. So one main area is going to be relationships. So that's, first of all, relationship with ourself. How do we define ourselves? How do we feel about ourselves? How do we develop ourselves? Then there's relationships with other humans. Then relationship with living beings other than humans. Animals, plants, insects, reptiles, birds, microbes. And then there's relationship with things, non-living objects, and then ultimately relationship with God. So how do we, what's our goal in terms of relationship with ourselves, with other humans, other living beings, with non-living beings, with God? And then, of course, everybody's feeling that they're going to school to a large extent, based on career. Career isn't all of life, by the way. There's also relationships. So what are your goals in terms of career? And I'm not talking just about what career, like you can say, I want to be a this. But what kind of skills and knowledge do you want to bring to your career in, in, a, in a more holistic way? And I think if we look at those two areas then we can try to figure out, all right, how can I maximize what I'm getting out of school to contribute to those goals that I have? Unfortunately, one also has to pass one's exams and get, you can all hear me, yeah, in the back? And one has to get decent grades. Are you all undergrads or any of you graduates? Any of you graduate students? Undergrads. Masters, PhD? Masters. Masters in what subject? Classical guitar. Classical guitar. So if you plan to go on to graduate school, obviously you have to get good enough grades to go to graduate school. Um, and, and I really say, unfortunately, because a lot of the things that's measured in exams and in grades is not directly correlated to the kind of goals that you would have for your life. 
I mean, to, to give you a little um, idea with myself, what, what I found was the most valuable, at least in graduate school, was the field research that I did. When I got out of the classroom and I was investigating what was going on in different schools, I was studying in North Carolina, where I actually went and, went and observed students in the classroom and teachers and school leaders. I interviewed them. I did observational research that I found that that was, that was extremely valuable. And it was information and experiences that not only enriched me in terms of my career, but also enriched me in terms of my relationship and enriched me in terms of just who I am, my own identity, how I think about the world. The other thing that I found very useful was my relationship with the other students, and I often found that to be more valuable than what I was learning from the teacher. So at least in the programs that I was in, many of the students were also very knowledgeable. Most of them were working professionals. And I got to learn as much or more from the other students as I did from the professors. And again, it was, it was very practical and applied knowledge. And then I had a few professors who taught in such a way that I discovered truth for myself. And when we discover truth for ourselves, it sticks a lot better than when someone just tells us truth. So does everybody have something to write on or something to write with, or at least you have a phone? Is there anyone who doesn't even have a phone? Okay, well, we, this gentleman has a booklet with some paper in it, so. And Brenda has some extra paper. As I said, my original intention was we were going to do this kind of as a group thing on, on a board, but as there is no board. Do you need something to write on and with? Um, is, it, is a mental note sufficient? Not, it's not as effective. I mean, a mental note might work if you only have one thing that you're going to think of, but as you're probably going to have a bit of a list, I don't know if a mental note will be sufficient. Okay, so I'd like, and, and with your phone, please don't get distracted by your... There's a problem with phones, right? Oh, I got a WhatsApp message and an Instagram notification. So if you can uh, just, what are your goals? What, what do you see if you were to come out of your education, your current degree, or if you're looking at going on to a further degree, your ultimate degree. If you were to come out of the current or ultimate degree being really prepared for life, what would be your goals? What would you look like? If, if you can describe, you can do it as a list or you can do it in a paragraph form, what, what would you be like? And again, first think about relationships. So the, the categories under which we're looking are our relationship with ourselves, how we feel about ourselves, with other humans, with other living beings, animals, plants, bugs, etc., with objects and with God. And then in terms of career, what you, how do you want to be prepared for your career? And again, if you can think, um, maybe get a picture of your idealized self, whatever that would be, three years from now, five years from now at whatever point you feel that you'll have finished your education. And try to look at that idealized self in these areas. And then if you make some notes about what you would be like, what you'd be able to do, what would you know? So you want to think about what would you know, what would you be able to do, and what kind of person would you be? So I want to take a few minutes for you to make. So the first thing I'm going to suggest as to how to get the most out of your education is to keep this list somewhere and refer to it frequently to help you prioritize. You know, what, what are my goals? What am I trying to be? What am I trying to achieve? And again, to keep in mind that the vast majority of the professors you're going to deal with, unfortunately, are not trained in teaching and are often not aiming at really practical, valuable life skills, either as a person or in a career. They're, most of the thrust is just simply in communicating information. So what I'd like to do right now is kind of open this up because I don't want to give just some sort of a generic idea or just do this, just do this. And based upon what you've written, I'd like you to just ask me some questions 
regarding your own education and your own goals that I could perhaps help you with from a spiritual perspective or from an educational perspective or both. Yes? So you, you talked about like education involving like your career, but also like these different like relationships. Yes. When you're being educated, are you, do you think see, um, being educated about those things separately, or should you be kind of doing it holistically while you're learning your, uh, even if it's like technical, like you're educated for your career, through that you're also supposed to be having like your education about your relationships, or you're doing one on one time and then like you do the other ones separately? It, it, ideally, it should be holistic, although sometimes you're focusing on one particular aspect. But idealistically, a career, there's a, a, a Japanese model that I find incomplete but very helpful. That your career should be the intersection of what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs, and what can earn you a living. And I'd say insufficient because it's also what would please Krishna. Which was, is sort of kind of included in what the world needs, but perhaps implicitly rather than explicitly. So that means that your career is also about your relationship to yourself, to others, to the world, and to God. It's, it's not really a separate thing. But sometimes you might have to concentrate just on a particular technical aspect of something in order to develop expertise in your career. So that may be true. Or sometimes you may want to focus just on some particular theological or theoretical concept of, of how you're going to work in relationship to these. So sometimes we want to look at things. You can't always look at everything holistically. That's, that's not possible. But that, that overriding holistic vision should certainly be there. Yeah. Um, I did kind of two parts. Okay. So they kind of deal with, um, so what if your career goals don't, um, like in a lot of careers, it can be high stress and mm. you really love what you're doing and it's important um, and you feel fulfilled by it, but it's, you know, high stress or um, you have to deal with, like, difficult emotions a lot. Or, okay. And, like, how do you incorporate that into feeling, um, like, at peace or like, happy? I'm very glad you asked that question. First of all, some of us have a personality that's energized by a, a challenging, stressful environment. So we, each of us is an individual, and some of us prefer that kind of environment to just a peaceful environment. There are people who thrive in, you know, trauma centers and, or man, you know, answering a hotline or running a very complex organization and, you know, or being in the military, being a firefighter. So there's people who, who actually enjoy having some career that has some degree of stress or some degree of danger or, you know, I have a, a friend who works in a a medical center dealing with Alzheimer's patients. You know, that, that are too stressful for the family to deal with. And so the family puts them in this medical center. And, you know, he describes some of the things he goes through with some of these patients. I mean, it's, it's very difficult. I, I can't imagine myself lasting more than a few days in that kind of an environment. I would just, you know, I just can't take it. So that's the first thing, is when you're looking at a career... You want to look at what's going to be in sync with your nature and your personality. Do you like things to be the same day after day? And do you want to work in a very calm environment with either very few people or just very peaceful people? You know exactly what you're going to do. And, you know, or do you, want to, do, you, do you like danger? Do you like danger? Do you like stress and challenge? And Does that make sense? You know, and... It, Choose something that's going to fit with your nature. So if you're the kind of person who likes a lot of challenge and likes a lot of variety and likes difficult situations, then a stressful career isn't going to stress you as much. If it's a good fit, it, it should actually energize you. But how to deal with difficult emotions and remain peaceful is one of the most essential questions for every single human being, actually. And, you know, there are so many different ways that people have of trying to answer that question. So there's a, regardless of what career you have and regardless of what kind of life you have, there's going to be problems with some stress and negative emotions. I mean, that, that's going to happen to everybody. 
about something sometime, and sometimes it's going to be very intense. And even if you choose a, a very peaceful, scheduled life, there's going to be things that happen that are intense, and things that happen that, that one has no control over at all, that other people do and other situations do. So how to deal with that? And a lot of times, our negative emotions just come from ourselves. Our worrying about the future, or our obsessing about something in the past, or many times, you know, it's, it, it doesn't require anything in our environment. And I'm sure we all know people who probably should be in a high-stress career, but aren't, and so they create their own stress wherever they go. Yes? I know people like that. They're, you know, drama and stress creators. They should be on the stage, you know. They're, they're just in the wrong career. <laughs> so they kind of create a drama action movie every, every, with every step they take. So that, that's also there. So there's, there's many different ways that people have of trying to be, remain peaceful. And throughout whatever you look at any religion or any spiritual tradition, there's a certain commonality of how to remain peaceful in this world, with the ups and downs of this world. And for those of us in the Hare Krishna movement who are practicing bhakti yoga, we follow that and commonality, and then we also have something additional that makes it not only easier to be equipoised, but also a lot more fun. So in most, in most spiritual traditions and most religions, the concept of equanimity is to take a mood of detachment. To basically step back and realize that I am not this body or this mind. I am an inhabitant in the body and the mind, neither of which is me. The mind is a subtle material machine and the body is a gross material machine. And I'm observing the actions of the body and mind much as I might observe a movie or a computer game or something like that. that I'm simply the observer. And I become... I, I identify with it just by attachment, just like you might identify with a character in a book or a movie out of attachment, but actually they have nothing to do with you. So emotions are basically the body is reacting to certain circumstances. That reaction puts certain chemicals into our body, engages certain chemical processes that you know speed up or slow down our heart rate, our breathing, change how the blood is circulating within our body, where the attention of the nervous system is going, whether our digestion is slowed down, which parts of our brain are getting oxygen, in order to deal with perceived situations in the environment. And when our body does that, our mind looks at those chemical signals in our body and gives an interpretation on them. Oh, when, when there's this feeling and this sensation and this sensation, it means this. And a lot of that comes from our upbringing. Oh, this means sadness, or this means fear, or this means anger, or this means guilt. Many times we don't even do that. We just kind of feel it. You know, we don't even necessarily put a name on it. But there's these feelings that go in the body. And then we just respond to those feelings, which is basically just kind of biological and animal level. You know, it's basically what's happening. So one way to do it is to start by realizing that what's going on is my body is programmed, my body is wired to respond to different stimuli in the environment with different biochemical reactions, with the idea of the short and long-term preservation of the body. Just like with your computer, if it gets too hot, the fan turns on. And if it gets really hot, it shuts down. Right? So it's something like that. You know, we're, our body's responding to temperature changes, light changes, but it's also responding to, is somebody threatening me? Is, some, is that an attractive romantic partner that I'm interested in? Is that some food that I want to eat? Is this something that I need to regulate my body temperature? Is this something that I need or want to gain status in society? Status in society on an animal level is very much related to access to resources. 
Right? In human society, if you have a higher status, you have greater access to resources generally. Yes? So if our status is threatened, or if, our, if, there, if we have some means of enhancing our status, so there's some, there's some notice of this on, on this really kind of core physiological level. Oh, there's a way of, of enhancing my status. That will give me more access to resources. Okay, let me respond with a desire for it. Oh, someone's threatening my status. They're insulting me. They're criticizing me. They're bad-mouthing me. Oh, if my status is, is affected, I may not have as much access to food and shelter and mates and so forth. So let me defend myself or let me attack the other person. Let me reestablish my status over the other person. And basically, that's, those are the things that we interpret as emotions. There are such a thing as real emotions, which I'll get to in a moment. But anyway, those are the things that we interpret as emotions. And the mind often even says, I am. I am upset. I am angry. Which, if you think about it, is completely absurd. Who are you? I'm angry, Jones. You know, it's just like, that's not my identity. I'm not happy or sad or angry or frustrated or lonely or... It's a, particular, it's a particular physiological reaction. Now, one way to get some detachment is indeed to put a name on it. That's a good first step. Just instead of having the feelings, just to even put a name on it. And there's a, a number of very nice uh, counseling psychological systems where the first thing you do is you put a name on it. But you make sure you don't say, I am, you say, I feel. <laughs> So I feel sad. And they'll give you lists of feelings words, which is fascinating because most of us grow up without a whole lot of these. We probably have, I feel good, bad, happy, sad, you know, angry, frustrated. We, we don't really have a large feeling vocabulary. And often our feeling vocabulary is skewed to the negative. So like 70, if I was to ask you to write down words for feelings... You know, 70% would probably be negative. And there's a whole other psychology about that. But how we, we tend to notice the negative more than the positive. But sometimes just putting a name on it helps to get a little distance. Not, I am sad, but I feel sad. And even better than that is, oh, there's sadness in my body. And even a little better than that is actually kind of Stopping and scanning what's, what's going on in my body. Okay, heart's beating this way, and breathing is like this, and there's, and there's a jumpy feeling, and you know, to, to kind of break it down and to realize that it is a biochemical reaction. It's not me, I am the observer. So that's a good first start, either to put a name on it and to say, there is whatever in my body which requires us to have a good feeling vocabulary, or even just to identify the sub-sensations that we conglomerate and put a name to. Everybody following me so far? And doing that takes us one step toward the human, because the animals don't do that. They just get a sensation according to the biological stimulus, and they act according to that. And they're not capable, as far as we know, they're not capable of taking that one step back and going, oh, this is this. All right, the next thing is then we have a choice gap. Now, often with these feelings, we don't feel like we have a gap in time to make a choice. It feels like there's a feeling and we respond. That's what it appears to us. And in fact, sometimes that's necessary if there's some life or death threat that we need to respond very quickly without any kind of thought. But that's quite unusual. You know, in, in your whole life, you'll probably be able to count on the fingers of one hand how many times you really have to respond instantly without thought. And there, there really is a space to consider how to respond now, to become aware of that space, it really helps 
if one situates one's mind in what we call sattva in Sanskrit. The word sattva is related to the word sat. It's, we would spell it with Latin letters, S-A-T, but you don't say it sat. You'd say it really like it was S-U-T, sat. Even that's not quite exactly right. But sat means truth or goodness, reality. So when the mind is situated in sat or sattva, then it allows the mind to be aware of this very small space of choice. And in, the, in that awareness of this small space of choice, the space sort of magnifies. And we become aware, wait a minute, I really can choose how to respond. Now, people who, who aren't in sattva, or even above sattva, is transcendence tend to have three kinds of responses to these biological urges that we call emotions. One is they just simply act on them immediately. So if they feel sensations that we would identify as anger, they yell, they punch, they kick, they get red in the face, you know, they slam doors, they insult people, whatever. You know, if they have biological chemical reactions that we identify as sadness, they cry, they go to their room, they close the door, they play some blues music, you know. So to express them in some way, right, to immediately express them. Now, of course, if we just express our emotions, um, we would be just like animals, and we would definitely damage ourselves and our relationships, at least to some extent. So children, human children are taught very early on not to just simply express all of their emotions immediately. It, it's something that parents really inculcate in you. You know, that just because you're feeling upset doesn't mean you can lie on the floor in the supermarket and, you know, throw the bags of potato chips around. So, so we're, we're taught very early on that just expressing our emotions immediately may damage us and may damage our dealings with others they may damage our possessions, they may damage so, so many things. And we were talking this morning at the temple how many times people will uh, watch movies, play games, go to sporting events to get some safe place to express their emotions. Okay, I can express my anger at the, at the other team, or I can express my anger at the other political party, or something like that. So we're really not that angry at the other team. Why should we be that angry at the other team? Who cares? They're just professional players who have nothing to do with us anyway. But, you know, it, we're, really, we're really angry at the professor who took down our grade because he counted the cover sheet of the, of the paper as a page when clearly it wasn't a page. And he just said, well, too bad. I'm going to give you a low grade anyway. That actually happened to me. So, you know, and, and we're, we're really angry at the professor and instead we yelled at the other team or... We yell at Donald Trump or something like that. So we have some, some place where we, we express that. Another thing that we do is we, is we take those feelings and we try to stop them. So this is the other very common response is, okay, the, these feelings are dangerous. They may harm me. They may harm others. They may get me into trouble. So let me just try to stop them. And we use a lot of our mental energy to hold those feelings, to kind of push them down, to repress them, yeah? And just, we, we try to convince ourselves that we don't really feel them. So when we express our feelings, we generally try to convince ourselves that we're justified in expressing our feelings. We get into all kinds of stories, which we tell ourselves and others about why it's okay to act the way we're acting, why we're right. And if we can't tell ourselves a story about why we're right, if our story tells ourselves that we're wrong, probably something internalized from our parents or teachers or friends or whatever, then we want to respond by trying to kill the, those, those sensations and to try to force them to go away. And, and, and unfortunately, when we push them down, we're using a lot of our energy to push them down and to hold them down. And if we hold them down long enough, we forget that we're holding them down. Maybe go from repression to suppression. And 
we're still holding them down and we're still using a lot of energy to hold them down, but we're not aware of that anymore. And another way that people deal with their emotions is they just try to forget about them entirely, which is a lot of the reasons why people take various consciousness-changing chemicals or, you know, zone out on a comedy show or something like that, you know, just... Or, or keep busy all the time. That's another way of just kind of escaping what you... Let me just keep so busy that I don't have time to think about what I'm feeling and I don't have time to figure out how I'm going to respond to what I'm feeling. So instead of doing that, one becomes the observer and does something that's neither expressing them nor repressing them nor numbing ourselves to them. None of those. But doing something that seems rather odd and that is that we just simply accept that they're there. I mean, we do this to a large extent with the weather. We just accept. What else are you going to do about it? You know, it's cold and it's raining. It just is. You know, it, it doesn't really matter what you think about it. Nobody particularly cares. You know, who's ever running the universe isn't, it just isn't particularly concerned. You could say, well, wait a minute, it's April 30th. Why is there snow on the ground? And it's just kind of irrelevant. So it's like that. You just see that this body is designed for its preservation, and so naturally it has these reactions, and you just kind of let it be. You don't try to make them go away, nor do you express them. One thing that can help is by envisioning these emotions, not even just so much with a name, but as a creature, as some sort of entity. You know, maybe it's some little fuzzy troll with long blue matted hair or something, or, you know, it's some, some, something that's not you that you're observing. You know, a two-year-old troll having a tantrum or something. <laughs> Sometimes I suggest that they, people think of them as a stray dog. Like you're walking down the street, you see a stray dog, and you know, you don't want to pet a stray dog, it may have diseases. You don't necessarily want to take it home and feed it unless you really want to make it your pet. But nor do you want to throw rocks at it. You just walk past it and maybe you give it kind of a, a little bit of a birth in case it's, it's a violent dog, you, you know. But you just walk past it, you're aware of it, and you let it be, you let it live its life. But you don't, you don't really interact with it. So like that, you let the emotions be, and one, one might notice a tendency to resist or suppress the emotions. So one might notice that the emotion comes, and along with the emotion comes the, the desire to push it and to stop it. And then you observe that as well and say, oh, that's interesting. On the mental platform, on the physiological platform, my body is trying to, to preserve and protect itself. On the mental platform, I'm trying to preserve my relationships and stay out of jail and so forth. And, and so I'm, there's this pushing against it. And you will just watch that either. You don't push against the pushing. Nor do you get into the pushing. You just watch it. So you have this creature and you watch the pushing. And generally within a very short time, if you don't react to it, it will go away. It will, it will just use itself up and go away. Now with very extreme emotions that happen for very extreme life changes, that might take some time. So that's the general method that's done in every spiritual and religious tradition. And the ability to do that method is very much helped by having the, the mind in sattva, by having the mind in goodness. Because only when the mind's in sattva are, is one able to be aware of a space. Now what we as practitioners of bhakti yoga add to this equation is we don't, we're not just a passive observer. Because the problem with being a passive observer is that these bodily sensations that we translate as emotions are also the source of our pleasure. They're this two, it's this two-sided thing where they're the source of our great problems in life. Basically, they're the source of all of our problems in life. And they're also the source of all of our enjoyment in life, even the so-called negative emotions. 
we actually enjoy, in some circumstances, anger. We enjoy, in some circumstances, sadness. You know, or Shakespeare wouldn't have written any tragedies. (laughs) Right? We even may enjoy disgust and revulsion. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any slasher movies. I mean, there's, there's some extent to which we enjoy even these things. So if we simply become the observer, then we have gotten rid of all of our distress, but we've also gotten rid of all of our happiness. The only kind of happiness we're left with is a kind of equanimity of peace and relief which is a lot better than the distress of the emotions, but it isn't ultimately very satisfying. It's kind of like if you climbed up on a mountain and you're just sort of chilling, looking at the pretty view. I mean, that's okay, but after a while you want to come down the mountain and do something. So in bhakti yoga, we awaken real emotions that are not just biochemical reactions to stimuli, but that are actually coming from the relation between the soul and other souls and between the soul and God. And those emotions don't have a downside, although there's varieties of those emotions. And there's also in that category emotions which appear to be so-called negative. They are the origin of all of the emotions. So we absorb, we in bhakti yoga absorb our consciousness in those emotions. And when we're absorbed in those emotions, taking a neutral stance towards what's happening in the body and mind is that much easier because we have something that's actually satisfying. So how to do that is is actually a very simple concept. It's a concept that literally can be understood by a three-year-old child. Quite literally. I've taught it to two- and three-year-old children. It's not, it's not a super intellectually rigorous concept. At the same time, it can be explained in a very intellectually rigorous way, in a very scientific and, and deep intellectual way. How is it that we absorb our emotions and the divine? And the simplest way, do we have any, what books do we have here? That doesn't tell me the title. <laughs> Okay, no Krishna book, huh? No Krishna book. Okay, so the the book that would give you the greatest, the closest to it would be the Bhagavad Gita. But better would be the Krishna book, which we don't have here. I'm sure you could get it from the temple online. But the Krishna book or the Bhagavad Gita gives quite a great idea of how do we actually awaken our spiritual emotions. So once one does that, then the detachment and the, the equilibrium is very easy. And we then take everything we're doing in our stressful career and we see it as something that we're not really doing at all. <laughs> something that we're observing and that we're, we're doing it as play. As, as a playful, loving offering to Krishna. That we, we, don't, we don't take this life that seriously in, in terms of getting all worked up about this or that even if things seem very serious on the material platform. People are dying or whatever, they're getting tortured. Or, but we, don't, we won't see it quite that way. And we'll see it that whatever work I'm doing, even if, it's a very, even if you're in a war zone treating you know, combat victims or rape victims or child abuse victims or fighting fires or something like that, that you'll see that this is a loving exchange between you and Krishna. And the details of the externals are not really that important. That whether, whether you're helping, you know, child rape victims or you're growing sunflowers, that, that, that that's just a question of acting according to what's your nature and what works with the kind of person you are. But what you're really doing is you're having a loving relationship with the divine. So that was quite a long answer, but I don't know any, any short way to answer that question. And, and that question is really one of the questions that human beings should be asked. I mean, it is, it is right up there with the top questions that a lot of people don't ask, but it's, it's, it's one of the questions that when you 
get it, he's like, yes, somebody is asking the right question. So, like, a key factor to be happy, it seems like, is finding your true nature, right? Like your... Well, your nature in this world, that's your not nature. Your nature in this world, right. Yes, but, definitely. And that related to your career. Yes. Right? That, but most of the times, you use the wrong criteria to choose your career, like, I well, want to be wealthy, or I want to be um, these, or I want to be that, instead of finding what makes you, or finding something that it's more aligned to your true nature in this world. Yes, well, one thing that's emphasized in the Bhagavad Gita and in other books like the Srimad Bhagavatam is that whatever our nature is in this world should be corrected to our, connected to our income stream. That it's not that we should do something just to make a living and then what's our nature we should just do as a hobby. So yes, finding out what our nature is is very important. How do we find... Because the most of the time you don't even... Um, well, in my case, I, sometimes I don't know what I want. So that's hard when you're trying to find your I'd nature. say we do know what we want. It's just that we may have become confused by the well-meaning, well-intentioned, but not helpful behavior of our parents, siblings, teachers, etc., etc., that may have pushed us to think that our nature has some sort of intrinsic flaw in it, or that we should be more concerned with something other than connecting our nature with our income stream. So I'm, I'm in the process of working on a book with a co-author on how to spiritualize your career. And we, have, we devote quite a lot of the book. The book's written. We're in the editing process right now. We devote quite a lot of the book to why you want to connect your nature to your income stream and how you determine your nature. Um, I'll, I'll try to answer this very, very briefly. One thing, one thing about your nature is it's what you do automatically many, many, many times a day, whether you're asked to or not, whether you're paid or not, and whether other people appreciate it or not. And it's something that you've probably been doing since you were very small. And most likely other people in your life have pointed out to you that you do it. And they might be pointing it out in an annoyance way if you haven't learned how to do it very nicely. If you haven't, if you haven't been trained in the craft that to, make, to, to find expertise in your nature, then people may have complained about it. So they might have said, might have said you know, why do you spend all your time staring out the window, John Audubon? You know, that's exactly what he was told in school. You know, why are you spending all your time staring out the window? Why don't you attend to your school books? Or why are you always bossing other people around? Or, you know, why are you always arguing with other people? Or why are you always taking, other, taking things apart? Or why do you always have to be in the center stage? Instead of, oh, you want to be in center stage? Why don't you become, you know, a performer? Are you always bossing other people around? Why don't you learn how to be a leader? You know, that, that should be the response. So, like, most of the times, like, for example, when we're kids and we don't have, like, a proper leadership or proper guidance, mm -hmm. then that could totally get you out of your path. Yes, in fact, that happens to a lot of people because, because our nature is something that we cannot repress, that is constantly exerting itself. If, if the adults and other kids in our environment if they don't help us to recognize that our nature is neutral, that can be done for, in a positive or negative way, and if we're ne not then given opportunities to become expert in the craft of our nature, then our nature will probably be annoying people and will probably be criticized for being who we are because we don't know how to be who we are in a positive way. Just like there's this, you know, one gentleman I was talking to this morning, I talked to him about it a couple days ago as well, and I said, you know, you're always... You're always debating and arguing. And of course, and he said, well, no, I'm not. And, and the person right next to him, you know, who interacts with him all the time, looked at him and says, yes, you are. It's what you're doing all the time. And I said, you know, it's not bad to be argumentative and debating. Who, who has to argue and debate as part of their career? Lawyers. Lawyers. <laughs> who else? Politicians. Politicians. Who else? Hmm? Hare Krishnas? Hare Krishnas? No. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly hope not. 
<laughs> Not that every Hare Krishna is after. Well, scientists. Yeah. A lot of scientists engage in quite a lot of argument and debate. Right? So people in, in government careers and in, in intellectual, in the, people who work in the realm of ideas or in the realm of government, generally do a lot of argument and debate. Not in the bad sense of having like a ballroom, a ballroom brawl, you know, we're not talking about that kind of thing. But there are many careers in which a tendency to argue and debate is absolutely necessary. You know, a lot of teachers engage in a lot of back and forth argument and debate with their students as part of what they're supposed to be doing. So there's, there's a lot of space in that for a career. But his response was, oh, no, 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 I don't do that. I said, actually, you do it constantly. And the other people around him also said, yes, you do this constantly. And I said, what you need to do is you need to be trained in the craft of your nature. You need to learn how to argue and debate properly. You need to learn the rules of logic and rhetoric. You need to learn the rules of debate. So that, that's very, very common that, that people are... are they're told as they grow up, why, why are you arguing all the time? Why don't you just accept what you're told instead of, hey, maybe you should be a lawyer or maybe you should be a scientist or maybe you should be in the legislature. You understand? So it's, it, that is a problem. But try to think about, what do I do all the time? There's a really nice book <laughs> called Finding Your Element that you might find helpful. Finding your element? Finding your Element is the name of the book. Yes? I have another question. Sure. Um, well, what, should I ask if anyone else has a question who hasn't asked one? Can I ask a question? Sure. When you're talking about career and spirituality, what, I'm think, what I think about is community. Okay. Um, and think, I'm thinking about community being some important element in both, uh, progressing in both. And what I've found is that it's kind of hard in, in finding a career, a, a community based around my career in, in music and finding a community in a spiritual community. It's kind of hard to balance two. It seems like I have to balance two, two different things. And it's in where I, I sort of want to be all into one mm. uh, community. There are spiritual communities that are very interested in music. Mm-hmm. Many. So why not envision that and try for that? There are definitely community. There are definitely groups of people who are both very interested in spirituality and very interested in music. Okay. Thanks. We're one of them, but we're not the only one. There's there's many spiritual communities that are are deeply embedded with music where music is an expression of spirituality and it's a way to achieve spirituality, it's a way to, to express your own spirituality to yourself, to others, and to progress spiritually, to communicate spiritual messages. Now, it's interesting that you mention community and you mention wealth, because one way you can tell your nature is what makes you feel wealthy, what makes you feel prosperous. And it's not just cash. Obviously, everybody needs some cash. But, for example, there's a friend of mine whose son and daughter-in-law live on a gorgeous property without paying rent or mortgage or utilities because they manage the property. So they manage the property, they take care of the animals on the property. And then he works as a scuba diver, a scuba diving instructor, which doesn't make a whole lot of money, but he doesn't need a whole lot of cash because he's taking care of his necessities in a barter arrangement. So there's, there's basically, if we want to be wealthy in life, if we want to feel that we have a rich or prosperous life, according to the Vedas, there are six ways to be prosperous. And although all of us would like all six ways, the ways of being prosperous that particularly are important to us are some indicator of both our nature and our career. So one of them is community. A, a, not only community, but a community that respects you where you have some position of, not like a position, like a title, but where people in the community like you, they think you're a good person, you're an accepted member of community, not like you just have a community that you never interact with or they don't like. And another one is knowledge. Another way of being wealthy is having knowledge. So people who are really curious, who always want to learn things, 
maybe who, you know, their idea of home decor is, is bookshelves. So, you know, people who have knowledge as wealth. Then you have people who have renunciation or freedom as part of their wealth. Maybe they want to be able to travel. Maybe they want to be able to set their own hours. Maybe they want to live without a lot of possessions. So that's another kind of wealth. Then another kind of wealth is strength and health. So a lot of the people who are into careers that involve the body, like dance and athletics, or anybody in any of the healing careers, so where, where physical health and strength is vitally important. Then another way to be wealthy is with beauty. So people who want a lot of you know, music, art, dance, drama, maybe landscaping, gardens, flowers, fruit trees. That also is a kind of wealth of charisma. It's a kind of having a wealth of, of splendor in your life. And another kind of wealth that people like is power, which sounds really negative. But we, we need people in the world who enjoy power. We need people to run businesses and governments and various organizations where they're able to manage large groups of people. So that's another way of, of feeling rich in life. And these six ways of feeling rich, to a large extent, determine our nature. I mean, all of us want all of them, but some of us, we really don't care if we have any power in the world. And for some of us, we really want to be leaders, and we really want to want power in a positive way. We, we want to help lots of people. Maybe we want to provide you know, hospitals and schools and roads and safety for people. And for some of us, we really don't care about that. And some of us want a house full of paintings and sculptures and, and music. And some people don't have one piece of art anywhere in their house. You know, so we have different ways that, that we want. Some, like you really are interested in community. Other people really don't care about community. There are other people like they have one or two good friends. That's enough for them. They don't, they're not really interested in, in, in a community. Does that make sense? So the, these different ways of being rich are actually much more important than cash. If you have cash but you don't have the kind of prosperity in life that resonates with you, you will not have a prosperous life. And if you have the kind of prosperity that resonates with you, you will have a prosperous life, even if you're not cash rich. Now all of these ways of being rich ultimately come from Krishna, so they're all ultimately meant to be used in connection with him and in glorification of him, not separately. So I think we're getting late and we should be serving so, what's our schedule? Yeah, we're, we're late. We are late. <laughs> and I noticed some people already had to leave. So you brought some stuff for everybody to eat? Yeah. Okay, very nice. So it was nice meeting all of you. I hope this was helpful. Please keep your list. And please make sure that what you're learning in school is contributing to your actual goals. Not just getting the grade and not just, you know, passing the exams and things like that, but actually contributing to the goals of what you want to be like as a person. Thank you. Hi, Krishna. Please take something to eat. And please take the book. Mm-hmm.